welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 48 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We come to you every other week. My name's Patrick. Hey, it's King Scott here. And today, Scott, we're joined with one of our buddies, Archmage Andrew. How you doing today, Andrew? Good, 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 good. It's good to be back with you guys and to be able to hang out. I'm able to wear my robe for this, so I feel like <laughs> I've kind of, I've made it, you know? I've, I'm here. I started from the bottom, and now we're here. I think a good determination is of like your life is whether if you can talk about your hobby, which is board games, while wearing a, a robe and still be cool. I think I nailed it. I like where he's going with this. This uh, <laughs> he's got the attitude and everything. I love it, <laughs> Scott. We got a message from our good buddy Will Brown. Oh wait, 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 wait! <laughs> Number one, your good buddy and my. Um, friend we'll just put it that way there ah okay hungry gamer sent us a message and he said you know what you guys were talking about uh last episode we have some errata this is we don't normally do this because we never make mistakes but apparently last episode we might have made one that being we said that in unfathomable whenever the captain uh, is deceased or removed there's a chart that says who's going to take over the role of the captain and you had mentioned oh when we play bbsg you would do a voting process and i said oh i love that he said you know what i've played with a couple of expansions and i don't think that there was a voting process there was a chart there too my guess is you were probably playing with a house rule or something like that okay first of all i may I just have gave misremembered you the out. something I, number one i may have misremembered something and that is not out of the realm of possibility oh, politicians sure. do it all the time but bringing it up to us will brown i tell you what there are times whenever I say, I will play a game with you. I will have to come out and visit you sometime. And you reply back to me with things like, I'll just open the door and say, who are you? Well, guess what, oh, Mr. He Brown? Did say that. You may be becoming my nemesis. Uh -oh. Wait until we get together you know what, at Origins. The King's nemesis. Wait until we get to Origins, my friend. Well, speaking of meeting up with people, Andrew, you got to make your way over here to Western Pennsylvania. We've got a meetup on March 12th. We're going to be at Fabricators Forge in Coriopolis. We will not be buying your plane ticket to join us. I don't really want to fly anyway, so. <laughs> oh, don't sound too enthused. It's going to be a good time. We're expecting 50 or 60 people. I'm talking to the owner. He said, yeah, we'll get a food truck there. Scott, there is a brewery right next door. Oh, that's always mm. a plus. I mean, that's wonderful. Scott, I noticed the game you were pretty excited for made its way up on Kickstarter. That is correct. Our friend Connor McGooey with Inside Up Games, he has a game coming out called Earth. And if it's anything like his past games, I mean, I love Summit. I absolutely adore Gorus Maximus. Anything like those past games that he's had, this is sure to knock it out of the park probably going to be coming close if not done with the kickstarter whenever this comes out 
but I know we will be getting a copy to take a look at and get an early chance to give it a play. And we'll be getting our thoughts on it. And I'm sure that they're going to have some sort of late pledges. So you can put your pledges in for Earth whenever it comes around to it and listen to us here whenever we get a chance to review it. You need to talk to Connor and tell him, hey, man, we need these preview copies. I'm looking over that page and and there's people with all these, you know, he's got King of Averages thoughts on it and board game code. I'm like, wait a minute. We've got like 38 listeners. Come come on, get us in. I I mean, that's (laughs) people that you would not have normally gotten a hold of. Well, I've got to say, I mean, I remember playing Summit with Connor at Origins when it was first coming out in some hallway uh, at the main con because they didn't have a booth or anything. They didn't have a chance to get that set up. Loved it then. Connor Hmm. is easily one of the friendliest people you will ever meet. You get to shake hands with him once, and every time after that, he's just going to hug you. It doesn't matter what happens. He's going to hug you. Very, very happy for him getting another game out here and looking forward to giving it a try. Scott, I saw you had another one that we recently played on the table. You Were you playing some Breakneck Derby? That I was. I finally got a chance. All the times we've tried to play it together and everything, we never got a chance to. Finally got it out. Let me tell you what. I was a little nervous about this game whenever I started playing it. Horse number nine was doing nothing. We were playing. <laughs> we were trying to get everything. Horse number nine was still in the back. And we're going around, coming around the corner here. Horse number nine was still in the back. But then we started playing through it and getting a little bit quicker, a little bit more certain of the rules. Number nine started to make a run for it. We got onto the back stretch. Number nine was in the middle of the pack and really making a go at it. Number Number nine actually ended up winning the game from as far back as it was. Number nine. Yeah. The interesting thing with this game is you're playing with playing cards. So you're playing out a card. You have five different spaces for you to lay out playing cards. So you lay out a card. Your horse goes that far in the lane that matches that suit. And we just weren't getting things working out. And then all of a sudden things started flowing. It was a great time. I mean, we were literally looking at it, like cheering on number nine as we were playing it. So, (laughs) Yeah, this everyone loves this an underdog is, story. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, this one here I see definitely coming back to the table and I definitely think is going to be an in-law approved game w- without a doubt. <laughs> well, that'll take us sort of into recent plays. I want to start this out, guys, because I got one that's a little bit of a preview. We ready? Okay. 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 I got Clash of Galliforms. This is 2022. Kim Aber and Kim Jansen by Todis Games or Todis? T-O-D-Y-S. Sure. <laughs> it sounds good to me. Okay, so I'm not sure how you pronounce Totus Games or even Galliforms for that matter. The game is Clash of Galliforms. I had a chance to get a preview look at this game. The designers invited me to check it out, and I agreed because the theme caught my eye. Let's start here. We got an alternate timeline All where right. tribal clans work and live alongside giant birds. Huh. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, okay. I thought you were going to go with like robots for a second there. Yep. Giant birds. We got a harsh climate. Each player is a faction in the game or a tribe and its companion of giant bird, right? So I'm looking at these these player boards. You've got like the blood pheasants, the quails, (laughs) the grouses, and there's like people riding these. (laughs) Like my first one was, holy crap. And it's not like playful art. It's like scythe art. 
like, wow, this is really good art of a guy riding a pheasant. Okay, this is a first impression, so don't take this as any sort of review, but each player is going to begin the game by placing a couple of map tiles to form the board two per player. And once you have your map, you have your nest, and you're going to have one small bird. On that map, you're going to be moving your bird around to collect tech tokens and puzzle tokens, build outposts, and claim resources. Many of these tokens that you're going to collect, they're going to go to your player board where you're looking to upgrade your faction in a variety of ways and develop technology for your faction. In short order, you'll be making more birds and expanding your power, but other players are doing so as well, so we introduce some combat into the game. Now, we see our fair share of games that aren't released yet, so why highlight Clash of Galliforms? Uh, let's get the disclosures out of the way. They asked us to highlight the game in some capacity with the Kickstarter coming up, so I'm naturally checking out the page. People do that all the time, and we never repeat it again because games aren't all amazing looking. This is yeah. something that we do regularly with our side quests, our adventures on the horizon, and whatnot. I told him that we only preview games we have a chance to play. So Kim told me he'd send us a copy of the game to give a full review when we when they have one available. But with Kickstarter okay. right around the corner, I wanted to shed a little bit of light on the game, much like with uh, with Earth from Connor Magui. Uh, my immediate comparison, and I already said that the name was Scythe. I, it immediately made me think of Scythe. We each have some influence on a shared map, but we have asymmetry introduced through our own player boards and the technologies that we develop. That's usually a style of game that I like. Couple that with the unique theme. You give me tribes riding birds. <laughs> Mm-hmm. How could I? I mean, this could have been fantasy. This could have been a space battle, but we got blood pheasants. Uh, I'm in. Adventures, check out some of the art for the game. Check out the preview page on BGG. Again, it's Clash of Galliforms. I think you're going to want to see what they have going on in this. I think you're going to like the components they have so far. They've got quality cardboard, screen printed meeples across a crisp snow covered map. I am excited to see what they've got going on in this Kickstarter. I wanted to bring it up at the start of our recent plays today, though I didn't recently play it. Sounds like the game really went to the birds. Oh, (laughs) I feel like there's an Alfred Hitchcock reference in there somewhere. No, or a one flew over the cuckoo's <laughs> nest. I'm going cuckoo yeah. for this. No. no, that's Ken Kesey. That's sounds pretty cool, though. At least the artwork is good. You know, so if you're a big person into theme and art, it sounds solid there. All right. So preview out of the way. Clash of Galliforms. Keep your eyes open for it. Andrew, I think you should get the floor last. You're the guest, so you should have the final say of the recent play. So, Scott, tell me what have you been playing? Yes, I got a chance to play a game called Night Lancer. This was designed by Joseph Norris and published by Adversity Games. The best way I could really explain this is if you want to play Shadowrun, but not spend 27 hours just trying to figure out how to make a character. This takes place in, say, a cyberpunk type of environment that you're playing in. There's no real pieces that you're moving around on a board, but it's more of like a role play feel. So what you're going to be doing is you have a character that you're going to be playing. This could be anywhere from uh, a sharpshooter to a bodyguard to uh, a person who's great with technology, any sort of thing that you can think of. Really, they, they have it nailed down here. And each one of your characters are going to have different abilities with covert streetwise technical melee gunfight marksman so what's going to happen is you start off the game you take a look at what is facing you 
there will be jobs that come up. They may be high profile. They may be low profile. Low profile, of course, are going to be a little bit easier. High profile are going to take a little more time to get there and take a little more skill. So what you do is you take a look at your character and you get a chance to upgrade your character. Mm-hmm. Now, this could be anywhere from using upgraded parts that you can get on the black market. It could be getting different people that help you out, different contacts that will help you out. It could be different skills that you've learned as you go along. So you might have a, oh, let's see here, a high profile thing of a bank robbery. So in order to do the bank robbery, you have to find out about their system from an off-duty guard. You might have to use your covert skills or your streetwise skills. You're going to take a look at your character card, and you have a two for covert. Well, then you have a throat mm-hmm. slitter skill that gives you plus one for that. <laughs> you, I, I know. I love the throat slitter. That's just fantastic. <laughs> and you might have a couple other skills that you add on there. And what you do is you roll dice to see if you are able to complete the skill. If you do, well, then you move on to the next part of the job. And that will be pose as a customer to get a tour of the vault. Once again, this may take more of a streetwise type of thing here, or you may need some technology skills here to take a look at the computer systems while you're in there. Each one of these things builds up and you're trying to become the best gang whenever you're playing. So it will end up that you play through a number of rounds and then you find out who has the most points at the end. Now, there are different things that happen if you fail a check. Well, The cops are getting on to you and there's a little heat. So your heat level rises. So you don't want to go out on jobs whenever the heat's on you. So you have to maybe lay low for a turn. That will help you rest up and gain your health back, lower the heat that's on you. And and then Mm -hmm. you can come back and complete a bigger job whenever it comes around again. All in all, this was an interesting experience. Like I said, playing Shadowrun without all the time sink that you put into it. It's pretty straightforward. There were some things in the rules that could have been maybe hammered out a little bit better there, but overall, it was a very interesting experience playing this game. It was a lot of fun. It really got your mind going. You got to paint the picture in your head of this like Blade Runner, Netrunner type of environment that you're living in and working in and fighting in. And I want to give it a couple more tries and try it with different characters. You have probably, I don't have it in front of me right now, but I want to say at least eight different characters you can play, any number of upgrades of skills that you can have. Uh, There's a huge amount of high profile and low profile jobs you can do. There's really no way that you're going to play this game the same over and over. It's going to be a different experience each time that you play it. Really, this was definitely one that flew under the radar that I really knew nothing about. And once I got a chance to play it and try it out, it reminds me of a miniatures game, basically, that you'd be playing something like a Games Workshop or um, from Corvus Belly, um, Infinity. This is more like a board game version of that miniatures game. So really, really cool game, Night Lancer. Scott, I understand that one of the main portions of this game is trying to complete those missions. And in doing so, you have these cards and upgrades that can affect your dice and give you higher odds. But you can also use other players. There's some aspect of negotiation going on. Yes. Whenever you pick up a job, you can either be the first crew or the second crew. So if you're the first crew, you jumped right up and said, yep, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go in. I'm going to take care of the bank robbery. Then someone else could say, you know what? I don't know if you can. Why don't we be partners on this? 
well, you can negotiate a thing here and you can both be the first crew. Or if you know that the other group has no chance of completing this, you can say, you know what? I'm going to be the second crew. I'm going to go in on my own. I'm going to beat you at your own game. Whenever you take the second crew, it's actually going to be one of those things where it's more of a competitive type of game. So you can play uh-huh. either negotiating or competitive. So it's an interesting little line at your uh, a tightrope that you're walking there. How about the components? I'm looking, it looks like mostly cards and a few dice. Yes, it is. It's, I don't want to say it's a plain game because it really isn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has its own feel and own flavor, but yeah, you don't have any miniatures. You don't have a board that you're actually really moving things on. You have more of like a big tableau that you're moving little wooden pieces on. So this really harkens back to an early days type of Euro game. It's very clean, very uh, sparse, if you will. I mean, it's not really overdone with a lot of artwork, extraneous things you don't really need. It's basically, you got what you need. This is it. And I I like that. I mean, it's nice to harken back to those early days of just the wooden pieces and everything, keeping track of stuff. So I, I was a little hesitant whenever I first played it, but as I tried it a couple more times, it's really growing on me. Sounds like one that you're going to get back to the table. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is definitely going to get back to the table, take it to SCG one night and get it out, get a much bigger group there to play it and see how it works out. Just hearing him talk about it, the cyberpunk theme, kind of from what I can tell, it's a minimalistic sort of game, like you were saying with the components and stuff. I'm normally not sold on these types of games, uh, and and I'm raising my right hand to the sky right now because (laughs) I I am definitely a thematic gamer. I'm I'm a thematic gamer. I like presentation. I like good artwork. I like lots of, you know, table presence and and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So the minimalistic sort of, and that's just a word that I'm using, that wouldn't necessarily attract me, but I like the cyberpunk kind of feel of it. I like how the game hits close to really a lot of my lifestyle. And so mm-hmm. I feel like I should be taking taking notes as far as how to, <laughs> yeah. You okay, do have a cyberpunk so, lifestyle. A cyberpunk criminal lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I really like about this is on the back of the character cards, if people remember... No, I know, Patrick, you're, I could probably hear your eyes roll whenever I say this, but mm-hmm. the back of the character cards remind me of the old G.I. Joe packaging whenever they would have the Here file cards at the bottom, where they would tell you a little <laughs> okay, bit of the story cool. of the character and everything. And this goes into the story of the character, why they're doing what they do, their age, their height, especially what they're known for. It really does build a whole world around this type of game here. This theme. Yes, Definitely. Night Lancer. Running low on supplies during your adventures? Don't want to shell out too much coin to gear up? Level Up's got your back. We've teamed up with Tabletop Tycoon to get listeners of the show 10% off a couple of the biggest titles they carry. First up, Nemo's War. You've heard our thoughts on this one. A grand strategy game jam-packed with meaty decisions. And the theme here, oh, I tell you what, it tells a story every time you play. Plus, Everdell, an early review here at Level Up and a personal favorite for both of us. If you don't have it, you've got to get in on it. Look, not many games get multiple expansions after they release. Only the best. And Everdell, it's one of them. 
The perk just for you is 10% off Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition just by using promo code LEVELUP2022. You can visit their website at tabletoptycoon.com or click the link on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Add any of these gems to your cart, that's Nemo's War, Everdell, or the Everdell Collector's Edition, and use promo code LEVELUP2022, all caps, no spaces, for 10% off. Get these games on the table and level up. All right, guys, I'm going to steal the floor. I want to talk about one that I had the chance to play. This is a game by Dave Beck, a 2022 game published by Paverson Games called Distilled. Have you seen this one? Yes, it was on I Kickstarter have. last year. Oh, you have, Scott? Oh, okay. I, okay. I've so you've seen the box, but I haven't had a chance to play it. Adventurers, you might be familiar with the name Dave Beck because he's done other great games, such as, well, Never mind. According to BGG, this is his first. Distilled was on Kickstarter last year, but it can be found and played on tabletop simulators. So that's exactly what I did with the help of our dear good friend, teacher Ryan. First and foremost, thank you, Ryan, for taking the time to teach me games. Uh, It's easily the biggest roadblock that I run into with getting stuff to the table. So I really do appreciate being a gaming partner of yours. In fact, I have next week off. And when I say off, I mean, I, I, I'm a stay-at-home dad, so I'm I'm off most of the time. But like, there are things to do. I just don't have things to do next week. And Sarah's going to be at school. My wife's going to be out of town. So I've determined it's going to be HomeCon 2022. Uh-huh. <laughs> I yep. see. Are you cheating on me with other gamer friends? <laughs> yes. Well, hey, you want to hop on BGA? I got the week next week, so it's going to be yeah. gaming, gaming, gaming. Um, so I told Ryan, yeah, we're going to get in a whole bunch. But he's tasked me with having to come up with two games to teach him. And the problem is, Ryan knows every game. <laughs> So I don't know what the hell I'm going to teach him. All right, let's get back on Distilled. As you can imagine, this is a game where you're making whiskey and spirits. You're tasked with carefully managing the ingredients that you're going to purchase, as well as needing to upgrade your distillery over the course of seven rounds to become a world-renowned distiller. Let's take a break here, guys. The most popular spirit in the world. Any guesses? Oh, well, I know mine. Mine's got I've done the... So we're talking alcoholic drinks, spirits. Yeah, spirit. The most popular it, spirit in the world. Well, there's like spirits and be whiskeys beer. and champagnes and wines. Now, hmm. beer beer's not a spirit. It doesn't count as oh, a spirit. Spir- spirits are like a pure. It's like got to be from potatoes or sugar. Or, just give mm. me an alcohol so I can say the answer. The adventures oh, are waiting. It's got to be some sort of Canadian whiskey. And Scott, you're saying scotch? Oh, yes. It's vodka. Because oh. it goes with everything. Vodka, of course. <laughs> it goes with everything. So I like to look up these fun facts whenever I'm trying to find something to tie into the flavor. And I, I know it's not a spirit, but I did find a fun fact about champagne while looking for this. Every year, 24 people on average die from being hit by a champagne cork. <laughs> oh, oh, I did. Did see we that. all just laugh at that? It leaves the bottle. It leaves the bottle at 55 miles per hour. Wow. You're trying to tell me that that son of a gun is terminal? Like, it's killed people? On average, 24 people a year. You're trying to tell me that just the cork alone was the cause of death? According to this, wet, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, That's let's not get ridiculous. too technical. 24 people died from as a result of a champagne cork. It could mean that somebody swallowed the cork and they choked to death on it. I don't know. Uh-huh. Maybe it yeah. means that they all got hit in the temple. <laughs> 
but I thought that was fun. Let's get back to distilled. What's going on in this game? Okay, let's start with the setup. It's going to provide each player with a player board representing their distillery, mainly with areas to house various cards that you're going to be acquiring throughout play, but also with a recipe list to the right with the various concoctions that you can create. You're going to have a market of cards set up containing basic resources as well as an item, ingredient, and an upgrade deck with four cards revealed each. Interestingly enough, Scott, we just talked about Night Lancer and it has cards instead of a board. This has cards instead of a board. Most of the game's going to be played with these card areas, these markets, and your player board. Now we're going to make some booze as dictated by the recipe chart, so let's start there. Anytime that you're looking to distill, you've got you've got to have a yeast, water, and sugar. Uh, you'll acquire these in the mm-hmm. market phase, and then you'll put them into your vat during the distill phase. And of the cards that you put into the vat, this is the main mechanism of the, the brewing of this game. You're going to shuffle them all up. You're going to mill the top card and get rid of the bottom card. Those cards, they go back into your like back into your available to use area. It's like the runoff. The remaining cards, whatever was left in that stack, say you put five cards in, you got rid of the top, got rid of the bottom. Those other three cards, you flip those up. That shows you what you're capable of making. So early on, when you don't have much to work with, this often means you're going to be making moonshine or vodka. Because that's just happens to be what you had flipped up. But later on in the game, you can manipulate and say, you know, I'm going to pump a crap load of sugar and yeast in here and only a little bit of water so that I know Mm. that I'm going to have four sugar and three yeast. And that's what I need in order to produce this expensive. Give me a lot of points bottle. Make sense? Yes. (laughs) Slap a label on the bottle. You're going to get some coins and some points. But. Perhaps you made something special that requires some aging. In this case, you don't just sell it. You don't immediately cash it in and label it and get your points. Instead, you put it to the bottom right of your player board where it's going to age. Mm -hmm. This simply means that you take a flavor card each round and you add it to the bottom of that stack that makes up the recipe and you sell it in the future rounds, adding more flavor each round that you let it age. And usually more flavor cards means more points. So we're looking at these and it's like, oh, with a hint of vanilla. Oh, with a hint of coffee. (laughs) But sometimes you'll flip up one of those cards that says, and it tastes like a gym bag or dirty socks. (laughs) (laughs) A gym bag. Yeah, so not all of them are going to give you all kinds of points. Please do not lick the flavor cards. (laughs) (laughs) And at the end of seven rounds, the player with the high score wins the game. I assume that this is not going to be something where you're all kind of doing the same thing. I mean, with all the distilleries, there's different distilleries all over the world. They all have their own little recipes, own little ways of making things. I'm sure that they've tried to work in some sort of asymmetry into this. Did they? Oh, my goodness. Yes. Good question, Scott. First of all, at the start of the game, everybody's going to get two characters, uh, well, like two people, and you choose one. That's going to determine your starting resources, but also your signature recipe. And this is a spirit that only you can make, and you can make it just once. So for some characters, it might present a light challenge and a handful of points, whereas for others, it might be far more difficult, but yield a ton of points. You're also going to get three personal goal cards, and you pick two to keep. So like endgame scoring, if you've met these objectives, you get to keep two of those. Plus there's community goals, like be the first person to sell a spirit with four flavors on it. So the whole aging process, adding a flavor card, be the first person to sell a spirit that has four of those cards on it. And of course, the upgrades from the market are going to quickly introduce variables and abilities that differentiate from player to player. I had a card, Scott, that allowed me to buy bottles at a discount. 
And then I found like this, this glass, not a glass factory, but like I found a, a like a bottle, a glass blowing thing that I could add into my distillery so that like I was making my own bottles, oh. which functionally in the game, let me buy bottles for cheaper because you have to buy right. various bottles to put your spirits in. So like very early on, I got that thing that would let me create bottles real cheap. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to become the bottle guy. There's like tour guides, there's greenhouses so that like you can grow your own fruits and you know, your own things that you need, your own recipes in house. Uh, oh my goodness, just flavor all over the place. And with it, comes asymmetry a few years ago i played a game that was relatively simple it kind of sounds like this because you're making you know you're making a liquid but it's coffee i believe it's called coffee roaster yeah it's a solo solo game right yeah yeah so it's a it's a solo game and it's pretty simple so where would you say that the complexity is with this game you know like how hard is it to learn how hard is it to play well, I had the benefit of learning it from Ryan, uh, so that makes it easier, no doubt. Uh, mm-hmm. But while the game does have a fair bit of complexity, I don't think anybody's going to find it overly difficult to learn. You got four main phases in the game, none of which are difficult to understand. But there are a lot of cards to be aware of, plus determining which recipe to shoot for next, combined with managing your ingredients and your coin. It's not information overload, but it does require a bit of brain power to play it all well, which right. is probably why Ryan kicked my butt. <laughs> yeah, it's probably sounds like it's probably got kind of an engine feeling to it. It definitely has an engine feeling. And with most engine games, I think a lot of folks find that that first time you play it, you're going to screw some things up. And the right. second time you play it, you're going to get a little bit better Then the third time you play it. You're going to look at those scoring cards that you get to pick at the beginning. And go, oh, OK, I know I'm going for this one. Oh, and I'm going to mm-hmm. combine it with that one. And the things just start clicking and your engine gets running. Is there much player interaction? Like, can they, can someone else buy bottles off of you? If you have that glass blowing part of your uh, distillery, or is it all that you're just doing what you can just for you alone? There's a little bit of both. There's definitely player interaction in the same way that a game like, I will say a game like Dominion might have it, where you have a a market that has unique cards and you're kind of racing sometimes to hit certain things. But a lot of the game is that you're playing on your own board. You have those community goals at the very beginning and you're racing. Oftentimes, see who can complete them first to score those points. So I would say it it is less interactive than most games, but it is not Mm -hmm. a multiplayer solitaire game. Oh, that's good. That makes it quite interesting then. Oh, yeah. So what are your overall thoughts? Well, this is a first impression here, not a review or anything, is I've only played it one time. But I'll tell right. you what, guys, you ever play a game and you find yourself like constantly thinking about it until you get it back to the table? A great killer, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that was distilled. That was distilled for me. Yeah, I even Mm. told Ryan right after our game, I regretted not backing this while it was on Kickstarter. For what it's worth, Adventures, I think it is still available for pre-order. Just Google Distilled Late Pledge. You ought to be able to find it. Great game. I can't wait till we get a copy, Scott. This has feature review later on in the year or next year written all over it. You're going to love it. Well, let me tell you, the whole I got out of the whole booze game. I exited the booze game quite a while ago. I see what Uh, you did there. Yeah, which which leads me to what I have been playing lately. Now, I've been playing quite a few different things, and I specifically picked this one on purpose. I actually want to throw a question to the hosts and Ooh. ask, what is the longest? Now, think hard 
but what is the longest game that you have ever played duration? Maybe back in the day, we might have had like a multi-day Axis and Allies, but it's because we kind of made it that way. I'm going to go with Twilight Imperium, uh, playing to 14 points. I will have to agree with you on that. I think Twilight Imperium is probably the longest one sitting that we've ever played a game. And we're looking at like 10 hours, right? Yes. So the game that I am going to talk about today actually took me 24 days to play, (laughs) to finish, from start to finish. And so the game I'm going to be talking about is called Exit the Game, and it's the Advent Calendar version. So I'll describe what both of those Ooh. things are in, in a moment. But first things first, Exit the Game is basically, uh, it's published by Cosmos Games, and they're designed by, I believe it's a, a husband and wife combo, Inca and Marcus Brand. What Exit the Game is, is it's basically an escape room in a box type of uh, situation. Now, Exit the Game by Cosmos won the Spiel des Jahres quite a few years ago for a lot of the of innovative things that they were doing regarding the boxes and puzzles and riddles and things like that. Now, there is a whole smorgasbord, if that's even a word. Is that a word? It works for well, me. Yes, it is. <laughs> now, there's a whole bunch of Exit the Games out there. I have not played nearly close to all of them, but I have played a good smattering of them. And the one that I'm talking about is specifically the Advent Calendar one. So for those of you that don't know, an Advent Calendar is usually a calendar that kids use in December. And what you use the Advent Calendar for is every day in December, you would open up a box. You would It's almost like a three-dimensional calendar, like a boxed calendar. And you would open up, you would peel open the door on, let's say, December 1st. So you would open up December 1st whatever the theme of the advent calendar would be there would be something there when i was a kid i had uh, micro machines which rip oh. they make the, i don't think they make those anymore but most of them are chocolates or some kind of a candy and so you wait and so every day in christmas from december 1st to december 24th with christmas eve you get something like a, a candy or whatever the advent is so yeah. exit the game the advent calendar version is the same thing except when you open up it's a narrative like escape the room game now no spoilers here no spoilers but i will kind of give you an idea of what in the world you're buying just because that's what people want to know but you are i believe you're with a group of friends and you're out skiing at the ski lodge and you're out on the mountains alone and there's a giant avalanche you try to get away from it and you fall into a pit and you're stuck in an ice cave and you are trying to get out and that's okay. that's the narrative of the game and that's kind of where i'll stop there how the puzzle part works which is absolutely brilliant which is why i highly recommend i'm jumping ahead but i highly highly recommend the advent calendar version is because the puzzles when you open up december 1st it'll give you little bits and little pieces and there's a puzzle for you for that day now The game is geared towards, I would say, families and teenagers, people with like kids. The puzzles, out of 24 of them, I only really struggled. And when I say struggled, I mean like I had to look it up. But I only really struggled with two out of 24. 
Uh, so all of the puzzles, when you open them up, let's say it's December 1st, you open it up, you pull out some of the pieces, you look at a riddle card or something, you're trying to figure out, Cal, how do I solve this puzzle? They take about 10 minutes. 10 to 15 minutes or so. They're fun. They're not super easy because, like I said, it did take me some time to figure these out, but they're not super hard. Like I said, there were only a couple that were just beyond, like, I like that was way too difficult for my mental faculties. And so what you do is once you figure out, there's a little decoder thing that you have to assemble. It's, it's all fine, but it'll tell you where to move on the box. So you don't move linearly on the box from one, two, three, four, five, six. You move based on what your answer is. So your answer might say down, down, and then kitty corner to the left. So then you would move down, down, and kitty corner to the left. And if that door has a symbol that matches your symbol, you're correct. And I thought that was a really great way of hiding you know, where you're going and what's happening in mm-hmm. the game. The puzzles are phenomenal. They're brand new puzzles that I've never seen used before. Things with perspective, and they give you things to doodle with. They give you things to play around with like a lot of the exit games do but this is one every single day so it's a little puzzle every single day now i did talk about this game and i got a lot more detail and i go into a lot more information on my youtube channel if you guys want to see that video but for now i'm gonna say There's two things that people usually ask me when I talk about Exit the Game, the advent calendar. First of all, what's the complexity? Well, I've already told you. It's pretty easy. And um, I'm not going to lie. I had some pretty good moments late at night, high, like self-high-fiving myself. Because I was like, (laughs) yeah, I got it. But a, a lot of people think the advent calendar is something that's really Christmas. Like it's, you have to do it in December. Now, unfortunately, the last time that I checked, which was a couple of weeks ago from recording this, the game is sold out. In fact, I kind of overpaid for my copy to come from across the pond. But if you can find it, it's not necessarily something that you have to wait until December. Not really. I mean, there's a couple of Christmas trees and and there's snow and, and skiing and stuff like that. But I wouldn't necessarily say that the narrative and the presentation of the game are like so related to Christmas that it's like you have to play this in December. It's not overly holiday themed. Not overly. There, Like I said, there are a few things. It's like, hey, is that a Christmas tree in the background or, or something like that? But I would almost say if you can get a copy of one of these, if they start maybe producing some more of them, I would almost just pick your friends or family, maybe your, your roommates, someone that you can do this, enjoy it together, right? And pick any month. Every month has 24 days in it. So you don't necessarily have to wait until the end of the year. You could find a copy and you could start you know june 1st you could do it in august march. 1st yeah march 1st and then just go through 24 days one day at a time i think that it is probably well no, not, i shouldn't say probably i'm going to use a big patrick word it is definitely by far Ooh. the best exit the game game that I have ever played. It was awesome. I don't even have like a box left over. That's how insane some of the puzzles were. It was a good time. I already spoiled it, but I'm going to end cap with it and say, highly recommend, highly, highly recommend. 
And to understand the exit games, once you go through them once, you're best off just giving them to someone else. Are you destroying any components here? Is, is the advent calendar game from exit something that you can, we'll say, put back together and give it to your buddy? This is a very akin to all of the other exit the game products that I've tried, the non-advent calendar ones, where they're all the same. They are all what we, what we call in the, the industry, I suppose, air quotes when I say industry, uh, consumable game. So you are not going to have anything left. I don't even have, like for my YouTube, I highly recommend people check out my YouTube. I didn't even have a product to show on camera left over. So there's, there's no replayability here. Absolutely zero. And that is, like I said, that's the standard for any other exit, the game that you would go out and purchase for, I think they go for about 14 or 15 bucks. All I'm thinking is we should be very, very afraid of these designers. These are super villains just waiting to be birthed. If one thing goes wrong, if someone cuts in their line or if someone orders the last or picks up the last piece of pizza, what tells us that that's not going to take the thing and push them over the edge to become the supervillain that we all know they can be? You got a question in here, Scott? No, I this is just a warning, a warning for Uh-oh. people. Be careful okay. whenever you're hanging out with these people. Don't take the last piece of pie. We don't need this kind of evil in this world. Oh, what the heck was that? Uh, yeah, you'll get used to it. He does it every now and then. <laughs> uh, that means it's time for the Top 100 Update, where we give a look at the Top 100 and see what has changed since the last episode. Falling stars. Seventh continent down three spots to number 55. New highest peaks. These games are higher than they've ever been. Scott, dude, Imperium keeps climbing. It's up to number 16. Fantastic. Lost Ruins of Arnak up to number 31. That's been my go-to game for teaching people how to play on BGA, on Board Game Arena. Uh, Melissa wanted to get on BGA and play a game. I was like, all right, we're going to do some Arnak. And then Nikki wanted on. She's like, I tried Tabletopia once. I was like, no, BGA, try it. We're gonna, I'm going to show you how to play Arnak. <laughs> Eclipse, <laughs> second on for the Galaxy. A Meteoric Rise all the way up to 32. Pax Pamir, second edition is at 46. On Mars up to 53. Quacks of Quedlinburg up to 58. And Pandemic Legacy season zero keeps climbing now up to number 75 happy birthdays first up spirit island has been in the top 100 for four years russian railroads eight years and twa also fondly known as troyes 11 years that's a long time yeah that really is when you think about like the lifespan of a board game wow yeah, top 100, 11 years. Guys, we got a review to get on with. Andrew, this is one that you picked out. We're going to talk a little bit about Destinies. You ready? I'm ready. Designed by Michael Golubowski and Philip Malunsky and published by Lucky Duck Games in 2021, Destinies is a competitive, story-driven game of adventure and exploration. Players compete to learn more about their character in each scenario, attempting to be the first to fulfill their destiny and win the game. So how do we play? Let's start here. Destinies uses an app to facilitate play. Players will open the app on a shared phone or tablet and select their current scenario, which is going to offer the initial map. 
Each player will then select their character and take its accompanying player card. Players also receive some skill dice and coin to place on their player board, as well as experience markers, which they place on trackers as instructed by the app. Now, the character card's going to have two different destinies on the back of it, with two corresponding QR codes on the front. As you interact with the game, you may have points where you're instructed to scan the QR code on your character, revealing further information about your destiny and how to achieve it. The map is represented by cards. As players move about the map, new adjacent cards are going to be placed, thus extending the area available for exploration. When in a location, oftentimes the app's going to instruct players to add character minis, adversaries, and points of interest, all available to interact with in some way. For example, if the scenario has a king miniature placed on the board and you choose to interact with them, you may get some story followed by a few actions that you might choose to do. Now, a lot of the action resolution in this game is based on a skill check system. That is, you're going to roll dice and you need successes to pass. However, Destiny separates itself from the pack here a little bit. Your skill checks are based on your experience. So let's say I want to lift a large rock. Okay, I need to pass a strength skill check. I look on my player board and my strength skill has the numbers 1 through 12 with my discs placed on, let's say, numbers 4, 7, and 11. So I roll my dice and I get an 8. I simply count the number of discs that are lower than the 8, which in this case there are 2. That means I scored 2 successes. As you have the opportunity to gain experience in the game, it's done simply by sliding one of your markers to the left, thus increasing your chances of success in future skill checks. Eventually, you will have fulfilled the requirements to begin your finale. At this point, you go to a point of interest, which is hinted at on your Destiny player card, and you begin your finale. This is typically a series of skill checks and interactions which, if and when completed... And if you're the first to do so, you win the game. So we have a simple system here, but make no mistake, the app is quite robust to the extent that your decisions throughout play are going to be remembered and rewards or consequences might arise as a result. Furthermore, the vast majority of items that can be acquired have a QR code on them. You think that ham sandwich is going to appease a werewolf? Well, interact with the werewolf, scan your ham sandwich, and find out. So what did we think of Destinies? What's going on during play? Is it fun? Let's do things level up style and give the 8-bit breakdown to... Destinies! Patrick, thank you so much for giving us a rundown of Destinies. We like to break things down here into an 8-bit breakdown with the different parts of the game and see how it hit with us. So... Andrew, if you're all ready, we're going to jump into the 8-bit breakdown. You all set? Hooah! <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what I knew it was coming. Number one, we have the art and components. Now, for me, I thought it was gorgeous. I mean, the artwork is top-notch. The tiles that build a land that was made for exploring. I mean, it looks wonderful. I love the cloudiness on the different sides. So you don't really know exactly what's going to come up. And the miniatures yeah. look fantastic. I mean, they really, really look great. What did you guys think? Well, I'm right there with you, Scott, with the artwork. It looks absolutely uh, stunning. Designed by Lucky Duck Games, which also does Chronicles of Crime, which is a game that I have been known to dabble from time to time. And so uh really enjoy the stuff that they that they do. Like keeping it focused on destinies though. Yeah, the artwork 
is really phenomenal. Like you said, you have that fog of war feeling with the tiles, very seventh continent esque, which we may get uh, into if we have time to get into that. But for right now, the only thing that I give you some pushback on is the the minis. You know, the, the while they look great. I don't know if they really, you know, fashion over function. I don't know really how well they functioned for you guys than for me. And just for the listeners, we played this game separately. So I played with my group and you guys played with your group. And so we might have different experiences and things like that. But yeah, for the most part, I'm right there with you, uh, Scott, on the art and I guess some of the components. You know what? I think the minis are very mini. Uh, maybe that's where you're going with that is these minis are tiny. And again, that's kind of reminiscent of Seventh Continent, not only with the fog of war, the, you know, the little haze going over each of those map cards before you flip them mm-hmm. up. But the miniatures in Seventh Continent were teeny tiny and they're very yeah. little here. And you know where you gave Scott a little bit of pushback on the minis. I'm going to agree with Scott. The minis are fantastic. And quite frankly, you get a ton of them in that box. For a game that is not a $100 Kickstarter, you get a ton of minis. But you know what happened to me? I'm six hours in. I'm on the second story. I'm like, I don't need to pick that mini. I'm just going to grab one out of the box. I don't need to I'm just going to grab one out of the box. Like at some point, it's like, well, I don't want to like squint and look at these things to figure out if that's the right one. I'll just, I'll plop it here and I know what it is. I'll lay this one down. I know what it is. Let's not forget the app is a component in this game. Now, I don't mind apps in my games. And in Destinies, while it does show various layouts and it offers uh, decision trees, it's also going to facilitate the story in the Mm -hmm. game and it provides a nice atmosphere. This app was phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I definitely agree with you. That's one thing I didn't really take in consideration that the app is really a component of the game. And it does so much to keep the game flowing. The other thing that I completely forgot about was the player boards. Once again, they've gone above and beyond here with the player boards, having insets to put different things in there, your little tokens for stuff. And it really adds so much to your playing experience. Absolutely. The player boards are fantastic with so many games that need good player boards. Uh, Terraforming Mars. These guys, (laughs) Lucky Duck Games, really knocking it out of the park. Now, going back to the app, I I keep bringing up Chronicles of Crime and and I promise I'll stop. But they have an app in that game that's an app driven game as well. So I knew that when I was getting into Destinies that there was an app. I knew that they were going to do a good job, or I just had a had a good feeling about it. I'm not one of those uh, get your app out of my game kind of people, but yeah, we're not I do. En- yeah, I do enjoy it to help facilitate some of the bookkeeping, and then obviously if it's a narrative game, which Destinies make no mistake is a narrative game, this app worked really well. One of my game friends brought their little tablet. So we had the tablet to kind of pass around. We didn't have to use someone's like tiny little phone or someone's large laptop. It just worked really, really perfect. And the, the, the player boards going kind of going back to that are so nice and they're just so beautiful. The inlet, even the little inlets for like your dice and like kind of where you put your money, very thought out. You can lay your character card out really, really well done. Well, we're talking a bit about that app. And you know what I find apps do in games is that they help us with getting immersed into the theme. So let's take it to bit number two. Scott, what do you think about the theme and the immersion in Destinies? 
you definitely get immersed in this game. I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, like you said, Andrew, the fog of war look to it where you're in this town, but you can kind of make out something over the hillside there, but you aren't really sure. You go to the different buildings and talk to people through the app. You move on to the next one and boom, all these new things come out and everything. And then you also have that destiny that you're trying to figure out here. And, but no one else really knows. So you might be doing something that is helping you, but it might unfortunately be helping someone else if you're playing mm-hmm. competitively. So it's one of those things that are really kind of interesting there where you really get immersed into it as to what your character needs to do. Yeah, when we talk about theme and immersion, which I've already kind of admitted I'm a big theme guy, I don't know if I would necessarily say that the immersion was what I would have wanted for myself, very subjectively speaking, but it's generic fantasy. For those of you that don't know anything about the game, it's a generic fantasy game. Unless if you move on to the expansions, I know they move out into like Egypt and you know have other themes that they apply to their system. But just right out of the base game box, it's a generic fantasy kind of game. And it is cool that the app, like Scott was saying, you, you go and talk to people and then go somewhere else and come back and things kind of change. But I never really felt like the see the immersion for me is the fact that I feel like this is a living and breathing world. And I never really got that feeling. Huh. See, I, I definitely felt immersed in it. I mean, it is generic fantasy. Well, you know what? It's grimdark. It's grimdark fantasy. There's a difference. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like a lot of the theme did come from the app, being able to play some music for you, being able to give you living non-play uh, NPCs, being able to give you the NPCs with some personality. But even just in the actual tactile pieces on the board, the cards that you get, uh, and I'll use the classic, the door is locked and you've find a card that's a key or a lock picking set it's really into okay so what if i go back there and i scan this card whenever i come to the locked door scott you had that happen in our game uh you found the locked door you couldn't get it open but then later on you found a lock picking set and you're like it helps us get a little bit more into (laughs) the world when it's like oh the door really is locked i really can't get in oh i found this thing and you don't just discard the card. You scan the card. It almost feels like I'm using this thing now and I have to mm-hmm. discard it. And oh, the door opened. Oh, to me, that's where the, the immersion in the game really counts. The theme, yeah, generic fantasy, take it or leave it. I don't care about generic fantasy, but it did do a lot to get me immersed in it. Did, it, did you ever feel that the actions that you did really made any choices of anything? It felt like that you were kind of on rails. Do you know what yes. I mean when I say that? On oh, rails? Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. And yes, absolutely. And I think what you're getting at is, okay, so you you have a locked door and you find, I don't know, beaver pelts. <laughs> you're well, not going to be able to open good. the door by scanning your beaver pelts. Obviously, you're either going to find a key or a lock picking set. And you know what? That's the one door that you're going to be able to open with it. There's not going to be like, oh, there's seven different doors. Which one? Did-? Nope, there is one. Yeah, it, to a great extent, yes, the... The door is meant to be locked. You're not meant to be able to open it. You're meant to find the lock picking kit and you're meant to scan the card in front of the door. Yeah, it is a little bit on rails Mm -hmm. in that regard. Yeah, not quite as like open world-ish as I kind of was hoping to jump into. Bit number three. Scott, tell us a little bit about the complexity in this game. I really don't think it was that complex. 
it's all based upon what doors you open or what decisions you make. So it pretty much mm-hmm. comes down to a choose your own adventure type of game there. Not saying that that's yeah. Yeah. wrong or anything like that. It's still an enjoyable game, but it's not one that you're sitting there really thinking and fuming over what should I do next? What should I do next? It's pretty simple as to what you need to do. And it's just like a, a video game where you start running around gathering up different things. Well, what if I put these together? Maybe I can get the door open with this, or maybe I can light my way with this. It still makes for an entertaining adventure while you're playing it. Yeah, I'm absolutely there. I mean, it's it's essentially it's scanning cards and rolling dice. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's essentially it. And you kind of level up your character or you level down your character. That's really all it is. Uh, it just depends on how many dice do you want to use because once you roll them, you know they're exhausted or they're spent. So do I want to go whole hog on this one to try to bash the door open? Or do I want to save and maybe look around because I think there might be a key or a door locking pick around, like set around here somewhere. But that's it. That's really it. The rule book uh, is like eight pages and it's so simple and so streamlined. It's it says fourteen plus for the ages, but I oh I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know. I think that would be a little high. Yeah, uh, I could thoughts? teach this to a nine year old. Yeah, it's very easy. So Patrick, uh, what do you think? Uh, complexity just what you guys said i mean the game has real simple movement rules simple upgrades and items that can be acquired an easy leveling system beyond that you're discovering things on the board and you're making some decisions in the app you go visit someone and they'll give you two different options of what you can do you pick which one you want to do it'll give you a, a skill test it's a skill check game you roll some dice and that's it i think i can teach this in 10 minutes and everyone's going to know what they're doing from the get-go you know, you have games that are really complex. So look, you're going to play this once or twice. And then there's those games that are, eh, they're midweight. Like you're going to figure out maybe halfway through the game. And then there's, I mean, this isn't lightweight, but man, it ain't far from it, is it? No, it's not. I would say it's pretty lightweight. Andrew, you started mentioning the rule book. Bit number four is the rule book and the learning curve. We want to give the adventurers an idea of that rule book. Is it really helpful? Does it teach you the game in a nice, intuitive fashion? And the learning curve. When we sit down to play, how long is it going to take us to figure out what the heck we're doing? And we've already spoiled both of these, so we'll do quick thoughts on it. Andrew, rule book and learning curve. Yeah, the rule book actually with all of the extra tables and stuff, it's actually 14 pages. Everything has got like pictures of the player boards and the tokens, the miniatures and how you set them up and how they work in the app. I honestly would imagine that someone could bring this to the table, take off the shrink wrap, and you could get up and running and playing this game very, very quickly. Very quickly. Scott, you didn't get the rule book. What do you think about the learning curve? I taught this to you. Like you said, the learning curve is really quite simple. You get a general idea what you need to do with the little tokens on your player board. If you roll over that number, you get that many successes. Simple little things like that you can understand. But the app helps you go through and really explain so much more. But still, it's one of those things where you go into it. Oh, this looks a little daunting. But yeah, the way you taught it and the way the app goes through with everything, I think it worked out beautifully. It, it was not a very difficult game to once you got into playing it. 
So I've got a kind of low complexity, create your own adventure style game that has us doing skill checks. Where's the meat in this game? Bit number five, we like to think, where's the meat? When you're playing a board game and you're leaning forward, you're scratching your head, you're in the zone. Ah, you know what? That's the meat of that game. Where is it in Destiny, Scott? The meat of the game really comes into you following your destiny. The idea of seeing that you need to level up and become something stronger and more powerful as you go along, I think that, for me, is where the meat of the game is. Seeing what your character is going to become and how you're going to get there. And if you're trying to get there before someone else, are your actions inadvertently helping someone else? For me, I don't really think that there's hardly any meat in the actual gameplay itself. As I already explained, you're scanning cards, you're rolling dice. Uh, and I think Patrick said, it's, it's a skill check game. Heck, I got like Arkham Horror, the card game is a skill check game. Yeah, there's some combat in it as well, but there's meat in that game. Whereas in Destiny's, I didn't feel like the, the meat was in the gameplay. Now, however, having said that, I think the meat is in the story or the narrative. Everyone having their own destinies, and there, there is this kind of a little spoiler, there is a little bit of crossover. That's where it is for me. The story, finding out where do I need to go. I'm this witch or a knight, somebody that has to fulfill a destiny. I have to go somewhere and find my purpose in life and talk to people along the way and maybe do some good or maybe do some harm, you know, whatever along the way. But that's where the meat was for me. As someone who's really into narrative, I like the story of the game better than I did the actual gameplay of the game. Andrew, we are sharing the same brain. My first note that I put down, the meat and destinies comes from your enjoyment of the story. Uh, the mm -hmm. idea behind our where's the meat is to uncover where the gameplay is in the game. Now, you can collect items. You can become better at hunting or you can become more defensive. Yes, you can try to adjust your skills to suit your wishes. Ultimately, this isn't a game where you win because you did the math or you pulled off a big mm -hmm. backstab. I think players that love Destinies do so because they enjoy taking part of that story and seeing what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Now, we run into an issue with these kind of narrative games, and that's in replayability and variability. I'll lead this one off. Replayability, of course, is going to be limited by whether you've played the story through or not. I mean, at some point, you're probably going to want to get one of the many expansions in the game. Variability? Well, you do have different characters to choose from, and I understand the app. I'm under the impression that the app makes subtle changes to variables within the story. Plus, it'll remember things. Like if you go around, if you're nasty, if you're stealing and getting caught, it'll remember that and people will start treating you differently. But generally speaking, this has the replayability and variability of a movie, right? Some movies are great and I'll watch them over and over, but there's nothing new each time. There's nothing mm -hmm. totally different, but we still like to revisit them. That's my impression. What'd you get out of this one, Scott? I will have to agree with you on that. I mean, you can play it through and you are going to be able to see where your destiny takes you. And then after a while, you're going to get used to like, well, if I go here, I'm going to get this. If I go here, you're going to get this. This is definitely made for whenever we had the beginning of the pandemic, whenever you're sitting there by yourself you got a chance to play with different characters each time and get something different whenever you're playing with a bunch of other people that's going to be a little bit different because you're going to see what each thing does 
I think that you will definitely get to a point where you're like, okay, um, yeah, I think I've, I've played enough of this game here. Let's move on to something. Gonna need else. an expansion. Yes, yes. So for me, the replayability is pretty low. Yeah, almost non, not almost non-existent. I have completed the entire base game of Destinies with with some play groups, and I have no desire really. And this is just subjectively just me saying I have no desire to go back and try any of this at all again because the fun is the the shared experience, but the exploration as well. Now I don't know, and I probably will never find out because I'm never going to go back and play play it again. <laughs> but I don't know if the map will change. The fun is exploring the map, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and and t- trying yeah, to figure out what's up here. Sure. Yeah, what's up? Like, what's up here? And then what's over there? And then you flip over. There's a giant guard tower that's been abandoned. Oh, I wonder if anyone's in there. Well, if the app doesn't change a whole bunch of that, and I don't think it does, but don't don't take that for gospel. I don't think that there's a reason. Like, yeah, there's a guard tower over there. It's empty, but there's a bunch of rats that you can squish or whatever. I don't think there's going to be any replayability for the base box. I did go out and pick up the next expansion, which is the Sea Destiny Sea of Sand. I have not touched it yet, so I'm not going to give any reviews or any type of thought uh, about it at all. But I definitely enjoyed the story enough to where I go, hey, more stuff. I want more story. I want I want some more story. And because it is the Sea of Sand, as I said, it's kind of got an Egyptian sort of maybe mm-hmm. Middle Eastern theme to it. Switching up the theme is gangbusters for me. If they would have put out that generic, what I call generic fantasy thing again in expansion, oh, Dios mio. I don't know if that would really be. Yeah, but it's like, ooh, this looks cool. And there's, I'm not spoiling anything. It's right on the box, but there's a giant genie on the box. And so uh, I think the replayability is just moving forward. Uh, yeah. They have another expansion that is mythology or something like that. I don't know if it's available. Well, they but could they put are... this in space. They could put it underwater. Basically, what, <laughs> what they have here is a system. They have they yeah. have a console system with their, their leveling system and their skill check system, which I thought was pretty remarkable, but that doesn't make the game replayable. It does make it transferable to other places and other environments to explore. So it might even turn into not necessarily Destinies, you know, a game with some expansion, or expansions, but it could be us. Well, what, what would they call it? Like a series of games. Again, mm-hmm. Chronicles of Crime has done the same thing, where they've jumped to where you can get fourteen hundred or nineteen hundred, and you're jumping through all these different time periods. Of course, you got to buy the you got to buy their game, but maybe they might do something like that with Destinies as well, where. Yeah, it's under the brand Destinies, but then you have all these different types of game within the brand or underneath the umbrella. So we're harping a bit on the replayability of the game. That's going to tie into bit number seven. Any downsides? Now, no one say replayability because we all agree that there basically is none. But other downsides, anything that kind of puts you off to the game, Andrew? Big thing for me, I know you already touched it, but I'm going to hit it as hard as I can. The big thing for me is there really needs to be some color in this game for the miniatures. I did not. In fact, I was almost offended almost because those little (laughs) tiny miniatures, you get about 800 of them. They're supposed to go in little spots. I never really knew where to put them all back. They didn't really mean anything value. It's like I said earlier about like fashion over function or something, Mm -hmm. you know, like they don't function all that well because 
Like, for example, you could take out a bishop and put him at the church. And you can go talk to the bishop. But then you can also take these, um, I don't know what they are, they're called, so pardon me, but these like interaction points. And they're tokens. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very nice tokens, but they're tokens. So why am I using little miniatures, tiny, tiny miniatures for the bishop and tokens for something else of interest. Yeah. 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 They could have either just gone all or nothing, or if they wanted to keep the miniatures, which I I do like, because like I said, I'm a big presentation kind of guy. They could have made the miniatures more distinguishable, I suppose, or maybe some colors. What my friends were saying when we were playing, they were like, man, if they were colored, and painted or something, you could kind of tell, oh, yeah, it's definitely this guy with the dark cloak. You can't really see that when it's all this just generic gray filling your box. And so I really, really, the downside, that was a huge downside to see all the miniatures and then go, hold on, wait, which one? Which one again? Show me the app. Is he carrying a, he's carrying, okay, it's this guy. No, 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 no. He's got a longer, you know what I mean? Because you have to, you have to. And eventually what, you say, you know what? Screw it. Just grab one. Gal, it was really bugging me trying to find the right one and then put it back in the right spot for cleanup. So for me, absolutely, hands down, downside was the little miniatures. My biggest downside to this was not really having strategy. It was just like, do I want to go here or do I want to go there? It didn't make me sit there and really consider what would be the best thing for me to do. What's going to be the most opportune thing? Should I go to the church or should I cross this bridge? Well, there might be something on the other side of the bridge. Let's just go there. I can do one or the other. And if that goes wrong, I'll just go back and try it again. I didn't really feel that there were strategic moments for me to really excel at and make it such a a great experience. Well, Scott, we got to play the first chapter together. I soloed a good bit after that and prior to, so I could teach you guys. For me, the downside, you know what? I had a lot more fun soloing. I had a lot more fun playing this game solo than I did with the three of us that day because, quite frankly, there's a little bit of watching the other people and then watching Mm -hmm. them pick up a phone and scan a Mm -hmm. card and then reading out loud to a table. And, you know, some folks love that in their games, but uh, I know I don't care for that. And those of you that maybe relate to what I like more in a board game, you might not like that here either. It's a great game to solo, though. And let's Mm -hmm. turn that into was it fun and who's it for? I liked Destinies. I liked it solo. I didn't love it. Uh, When I was playing it, it reminded me of playing Tainted Grail, which I actually enjoyed quite a bit. But I think that the difference lies in that Tainted Grail had a lot of the same narrative features, but it also incorporated a much heavier dose of card play and resource management. When I was playing Tainted Grail, I wasn't playing a story. I was playing a game that had story. When I was playing Destinies, I was playing a story. I had to I had to fiddle around with some bits while I was doing it, but I was playing a story. Nothing wrong with that. And if you love narrative, that's who this is for. This is the kind of game where if you enjoy a narrative game and you felt that injected gameplay, like in Tainted Grail in my example, got in the way of your story, 
Well, Destiny's is probably a bit more in line with your tastes. And I also feel like I see posts all the time, all the time from gamers requesting games to give you a little taste of role playing, right? We see that when we're scrolling on our feeds and in a board game group. So, oh, you know, how can we get a role playing game in, in board game fashion? This gives you a little dose of that with the NPCs having their their input and suggesting things and the items actively doing something in your world. For those folks, I'd be happy to recommend Destiny's. All in all, though, I liked it, didn't love it. Scott, was it fun? Who's it for? Well, it's funny because I look at this that we were going to the same destination point, but we took different ways of getting there. <laughs> so what I had, had here actually you was... You think you're clever. Yes, it was fun. I had a good time playing it. But <laughs> like you, I said that who's it for this is, feels like it would definitely be much more fun as a solo game. You want to sit down on a rainy Sunday afternoon and just sit there and play through it and see where you explore and see where you go. All right, Andrew, bring us on home. You got the final word on Destinies. Was it fun and who is it for? I played through the entire game. I played through the whole thing with myself and one other person. So I, I played it as a two-player experience. I enjoyed it. I'm going to, again, steal from Patrick. I liked it, but I didn't love it. I think it's a pretty good game. I don't think it's a great game. And I'll kind of break it down why I think that. First of all, the game is not a cooperative game. And yet, it's not a competitive game, really. I mean, you're not attacking each other. You're not fighting each other. You're not trying to steal things from each other. You're just both kind of living your lives in this world. So it doesn't feel competitive. It doesn't feel cooperative. And so I think that's where people are getting the the solo feel. Also, you don't ever really die. You're never truly like dead, at least never, never happened in the base game. I don't know what they have in store for the expansions. Mm-hmm. But the idea of the game is the story. That's what it is. And so I'm going to kind of repeat a lot of what you guys would say. Say I would say it'd be great as a solo game. I didn't do it solo. I did it with just one other person, which wasn't so bad. It wasn't too bad. Handing off the tablet, taking some downtime for 30 seconds. Guess what? Boom. It's my turn again. That wasn't too bad. But like I already said, I bought the expansion and I think I'm going to just go through it myself. I think I'm going to just take it as a choose your own adventure style, air quotes, game and see where the story takes me. So was it fun? Yeah, it was fun. Who is it for? Probably people that value narratology over the ludology in games. So they want more of a story and less of a game. Scott, we got to do a time warp. Okay, let's do it. Well, Scott, one year ago today, we reviewed Century Spice Road, a game where you're playing traders, I suppose, in the Middle East, and you're filling up your caravan with all sorts of spices, and you're trading those spices to eventually acquire victory points. Let's have a look back. Century Spice Road. Scott, do you see a future game day where you're getting this back to the table? Unlike you, I will say yes. I know I didn't get a chance to play it in the last year or anything since we reviewed it, 
but it's definitely going to be one of those games that if someone brings it up, I will play it in a heartbeat. The rules are simple. You make simple decisions, but it's still just a nice design, nice mechanics to it. And no matter what, whenever I play it, I thoroughly enjoy myself and have a great time playing that game. What did you think, Patrick? Well, you already told everyone what I think. No, I don't love Century Spice Road. Uh, There's nothing wrong with the game. Functionally, it's a perfectly fine game. Everything works out. I think what I didn't like about it in hindsight is that this is one that I bought blind. I didn't look into at all what it was. So the box shows up and I set up the game. and I'm like, oh, this is really simple. And then whenever you run the numbers, you're like, oh, okay. So brown equals one, green equals two, red, you know, whatever the values are. You can just assign a number one through four and it always works out exactly like that. So it's really easy to differentiate differentiate what cards are, are are more valuable, less valuable, or right on par. And therefore, it becomes really simple to determine which of the victory point cards are worth the most or will yield the most points compared with what you're trading in. And therefore, it becomes watered down to like, okay, we're playing a racing game. I didn't hate it. You know, I don't want to give the wrong impression. I think I just, maybe my expectation was, oh, I don't know what this game is. I'm going in blind. Maybe this will be the next big hit at game day. And we play game day and it's like, oh, I'll trade two blue for three green. I'll trade a red for a yellow. You know, I, I'm making it sound. I'm making. I'm taking a lot of the uh, the steam out of the game. But but for me, uh, it just wasn't all that spicy. So let's talk about, are we going to recommend it? That means for me, you know what? I can still recommend this for a lot of gamers. I, uh, it's a fine game. It's not my style, but it is a great game for its uh, for its time frame. We'll say that 20 to 30 minute time frame where I think you can get a lot of different players to play. You can get casual gamers to play this. And I think you can get more hardcore gamers to enjoy it while they're waiting on that last person to show up or maybe as a palate cleanser at the end of the night. Scott, you're recommending Century Spice Road? Most definitely. It's one that you can use as a filler. It's one that you can use as just like, I need to clear my mind here a little bit. Let's just play something simple, clean. It works out beautifully in that way. And also, it's a great one to introduce people into different types of games. If they're a non-gamer, it's a real simple one for them to jump onto. Hi guys and happy new year i'm andrew davidson with aspermyability.com from pittsburgh's baseball team to adventure movies starring the recently controversial johnny depp no matter how you slice it we love pirates we've even incorporated the word to replace solid old-fashioned terms such as thieves with porch pirates now i cannot speak for the fine and friendly folks running this show But over at As For My Ability, we enjoy calling a spade a spade. If you come to my place of residence and steal my Amazon packages packed with highly anticipated board game expansions and penny sleeves, you, well, you're a terrible person. On a side note, I actually had a thief steal an Amazon package from my front door where the board game inside the package tucked nice and neatly was Stop Thief. An old Parker Brothers game from 1979, now reworked and brought back to life thanks to Rob Davio and Restoration Games. But, oh man, I would have killed to have seen the expression on their face when they pulled out a box with big, bold letters reading, Stop Thief. (laughs) True story. I grew up in probably the best decade to grow up in, the 90s. 
please send all grievances and angry comments to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Growing up in the 90s, such a phrase, it never even existed. In fact, I don't remember anyone from any walk of life from my childhood suffering from routine attacks on their mail committed by, uh, all right, fine, I'll say it, porch pirates. The bad guys, the guys forever stuck in the history books who raped and pillaged, somehow became the good guys your sister wants to date because his eyeliner's hot have now magically returned to being the bad guys who maliciously steal your much-anticipated board games from your door. If you're an American, and I realize that not everyone out there listening to this podcast is, but if you are and you think of someone who is a terrorist, you think of an individual who has attacked and probably killed Americans. Maybe you think of 9-11. When you think of a pirate, you never really think of them on the same level of threat against the good old U.S. of A. as you would with terrorists. I mean, pirates existed in ye olden times where sailing the high seas was an incredibly popular and viable career instead of something your family does while on holiday. However, during the first years of the 19th century, American merchant ships were in constant fear and trepidation of being attacked by pirates. 1801, the newly formed United States of America, after the Revolutionary War that lasted from 1775 to 1783, where colonists banded together to bash and battle the British army who were sipping tea in their hood, finally find themselves with a supermassive porch pirate problem. After the American Revolution, American merchants lost the protection the British Navy gave to their ships on the seas. In 1785, the loss of that protection took on real meaning when the Ottoman Regency of Algiers captured two American merchant vessels and took their crews into captivity. Over the next decade, American diplomats ardently tried to establish treaties with the four Barbary states, Morocco, Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli, so that not a single American ship would fall victim from these rapscallions. In the late 1790s, all four states agreed to treaties with the United States. But the demands in those treaties were a steep price for a nation so new it was still in diapers and sucking on a pacifier. The Barbary states had been operating a protection racket in the Mediterranean for hundreds of years. In exchange for leaving a nation's ships alone, the Barbary rulers insisted on being paid money and gifts, sometimes at regular intervals, or else they would just put on their Gandalf hat grab their magic staff, and shout, You shall not pass! The United States had neither the resources nor the patience to keep up this system indefinitely. Beginning in 1794, the federal government made half-hearted preparations to send a naval force to the Mediterranean to take care of the problem by force because, well, you know, that's how we roll. But undeclared war with France between 1798 and 1800 kind of got in the way. When the Navy finally left for the Mediterranean in 1801, Tripoli had beat the United States to the punch by already declaring an all-out war on the American Navy. 
On June 20th, 1805, after four years of fighting the Tripolitan forces, a peace treaty was signed. Naturally, a lot happened within four years that I'm going to gloss over for the sake of brevity. But the VIP frigates for the Americans were Essex, Constitution, Constellation, the Philadelphia, and quite possibly one of my favorite words in the English language, the Intrepid. On the Tripolitan side, the Nautilus, backed by a brig of gunboats, proved to be quite the proverbial thorn in Thomas Jefferson's side. In fact, while little to nothing is known of the Barbary War by the common American, the whole kerfuffle is mentioned within the first stanza of the Marines' hymn. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, we fight our country's battles in the air on land and sea. As always, I like to leave listeners with supplements and extra resources should, on the off chance, one be so inclined to read about and dive deeper into the subject matter. You can read all about the First Barbary War in Brian Kilimede and Don Yeager's book, Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates. The Shores of Tripoli is a 2020 asymmetric two-player game published by Fort Circle Games. In the game, players square off as either the American Navy or the Pirates of Tripoli. While there is a board and cute little boat components for the aforementioned board, The Shores of Tripoli is a car-driven game. The game designer, Kevin Bertram, wrote in his designer's notes that, quote, The Shores of Tripoli was destined to be a car-driven game. My biggest influences were two of my all-time favorites, Twilight Struggle and 1960, The Making of the President, unquote. If you've played the previously mentioned games, you will find the Shores of Tripoli to be a much shorter, much lighter experience. According to the box, each game takes 45 to 60 minutes to play. And in my estimates from playing the game, eh, the duration is spot on. As this is an asymmetrical game, the win conditions for each side are vastly different. The American player wins by accomplishing one of two objectives. By forcing the Tripolitan player to sign a peace treaty, the more diplomatic strategy, or by launching an all-out assault on Tripoli, eliminating all the opponent's forces there and capturing the city, the more violent and combative strategy. Conversely, the Tripolitan player wins in one of three ways. First, can win by raiding the United States player of 12 pieces of gold. Second, by sinking four American frigates, or by eliminating Hammett's ground forces. Before giving the game any praise, if praise is even due, I have a few minor picks to knit with the game. First, if neither player manages to accomplish any of their win conditions by the winter of 1805, the game ends in a tie in a tie. Now, to be fair, I've played the Shores of Tripoli about half a dozen times, and there wasn't a single game where it ended in a tie, or even looked as though it may end in a tie. However, I personally think this is just lazy design. Look, if I'm going to sit down for an hour to try to outthink, outplan, and outmaneuver my opponent, there is nothing that grinds my gears more than ending my efforts with a handshake and a tie. 
as I am not a game designer, unfortunately, I cannot provide any answers as to what a Shores of Tripoli tiebreaker should be. However, there should be one. Next, not only is the game a game of quote-unquote read your cards, but I found that a lot of the cards give players the best bang for their turn only if you have the card in your hand at a specific time, in a specific round, and if there is an incredibly specific board state. The cards at times, well, they feel too limiting. It's as if the game is on historical rails, which I can appreciate how it brings out the history and the theme, not allowing for certain events to occur or cards to be played until a specific year or until another event card is played, because, you know, that's how things went according to the historical timeline. Unfortunately, this is still a game, and this seems to frustrate players more than it enlightens them. And finally, while being a light strategy game, the gameplay seems to be reactionary and formulaic. I have the exact same beef with the asymmetrical two-player game Tesla versus Edison Duel. In Tesla versus Edison Duel, there are clearly right and wrong moves. And I, I get it. That's pretty much how every game is. But when you've played the Shores of Tripoli more than two or three times, every move feels scripted. If your opponent does this, then you have to do that. And because you did that, then for their next turn, your opponent must do this, etc., etc., etc. Sure, you can break away from the formula, not react or do something completely different with your turn, but unfortunately, it won't yield any positive results. At least, not that I've seen. All you've managed to do is speed up the game duration where you will inevitably lose. But hey, at least you won't have to settle with a tie, right? So what are my thoughts? The Shores of Tripoli is an interesting and entertaining experience. However, it's not one that you absolutely have to purchase for your game shelf. If you need historical two-player games that you can play over and over with each game feeling fresh, then there are a ton of better games to choose from. If you need recommendations, then make sure you stay tuned to this podcast. To give the game some slack, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the Shores of Tripoli. But if you can get somebody by the name of Scott to, oh, I don't know, purchase it for the two of you to play together, or if you can try a demo copy before you buy the game at a local gaming shop, I can't see too many people purchasing the game, especially if they play it more than a few times. Once you figure out what the game is, the illusion of strategy and autonomy within the game, and have seen all the cards, your excitement and enthusiasm for the game will have sadly run aground. At the end of the day, you may want to let the Porch Pirates have this one. Once again, my name is Andrew Davidson. Thanks for stopping by my academy to level up. I hope I have given you something to think about. Bravo, Andrew. You're a master of language. You really had an Amazon. You had Stop Thief stolen by, what did you say, a porch pirate? Yeah, an actual thief. You know, I hear so many good things about Shores of Tripoli. It sounds like you didn't much care for it. No, I didn't. It's Like I said, it really is formulaic. It's kind of a game where once you get exposed to everything, yeah, you're kind of over it. Scott, you ever try this one? 
That I have not. I have not had a chance. And luckily enough, I haven't rented any porch pirates either. <laughs> Me neither. Never had anything stolen in the mail. And you guys are lucky. <laughs> Hey, adventurers, this is the part when you listen to other shows where they ask you for your money. This is when they tell you they just couldn't make their content without the help of your wallet. At Level Up, we do this because we love gaming and we want to share our thoughts and we want to hear yours. So keep your money and use it to buy some games. We still love your support, though, and the best way to show it is to rate us with five stars in iTunes. We appreciate all the feedback we've had. The input from our listeners has been tremendous, and we can't thank you enough. Our one request is that if you're enjoying the show, the old games and level back episodes, the adventures on the horizons, interviews with designers of upcoming Kickstarters, reviews, solo adventures, giveaways, the Academy Lost Loot, and more, please take three minutes of your time and give us that five-star rating on iTunes. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And now, back to the adventure. Well, Andrew, I'm going to give the floor back to you for our discussion topic. Having heard the story of the shores of Tripoli and your adventures with porch pirates, tell us another story. Well, a while ago, my brother, who lives in a different state than I do, got himself caught up in a game of Twilight Imperium 4, a super massive and epic game I would not touch with a 10-foot pole. What a lucky brother. With some of his friends. (laughs) Now, he's not a big-time gamer like myself. However, he does enjoy games. I like turned him on to Terraforming Mars. He likes Magic the Gathering a lot. Uh, he told me that the game of Twilight Imperium 4 lasted just shy of 14 hours. Holy cow. Now, towards the end, like the last few rounds of the game, my brother was not in any position to win. However, he continued on attempting to do what he could. The individual winning the game was not really winning by much, but my brother was not even really close. He was kind of in the back of the pack. He was the arbiter. However, he was playing with his girlfriend, the guy who's winning. Sorry, the guy who was winning was playing with his girlfriend who refused to play competitively by drafting cards that could not end up in the boyfriend's hands. Now, the girlfriend wasn't close to winning either, so she did not play optimally to keep her boyfriend from having to contend with others who were right on his heels. Now, this upset my brother to no end. He invested 14 hours of his life only for the entire game to be washed away by a girlfriend who, quote unquote, just wanted to see her man win. Now, despite the loss of time, I asked my brother why he was so outraged. I mean, it's not like he was in the running for, you know, winning the game. Mm -hmm. And he told me, he replied, quite frankly, I play to win. Now, (laughs) I told him that his sentiment comes off sounding kind of like he's an uber competitive guy that nobody wants to play with because he's probably a jerk and flip the table at some moment or when things don't go his way. Uh, That's kind of what that sentiment says to me. I play to win. What he meant was this. Everybody should respect the game and play to win. Even if you're in the back of the pack, you should always play to have your best end result. Maybe squeak out, you know, that seventh point instead of only having six points. Now, who won the game? Well, the winner of the game had 28 points. But you know what? You did your best. You got from six to seven right there at the end. So sure, you may still come in last place, but 
you have one more point than you did before, and you are still technically trying to play to win, to do your best, no matter what the cost or what the situation, I guess I should say. So the real topic behind this story is I've been thinking a lot about what my brother told me, and I've been thinking about how people approach a competitive game. What is the distinction between someone who plays to win and someone who is super competitive? Are they one and the same? If not, then what are the notable differences? If you tell someone that you play to win, they will most likely interpret you as some jerk who only cares about winning. But shouldn't we all technically play to win? So someone who is playing to win and someone who is super competitive. What are the differences? I guess that's the topic. What are the differences? Andrew, this topic intrigued us, and as we love to do, we turned it over to the community. But before asking that main question of what are the differences in playing to win and whatnot, we asked, should the brother have been upset by this? Was he right to behave that way? We had 264 voters, of which just about 80% said, yeah, he should be upset by this. (laughs) Whereas another 20% said, no, I'm glad to say this went seven pages worth of discussion, even as a spinoff thread of people talking about uh, <laughs> about your topic here and your brother's situation. So let's break this down a little bit. So looking over those pages of responses, we highlighted a few that we thought, eh, they're kind of onto something. Scott, why don't you tell us one that you picked out? Well, I got one from, um, now I hope I'm not mispronouncing this, Asalander. They say, I play to win and do cool stuff in games and don't like games where those two things are not aligned. But such a situation would only annoy me if the game was made more boring because of it. I play to win because that is how an interesting narrative emerges, or because it is akin to solving puzzles. But I ultimately don't care who wins in the end. I always enter Mm. games considering couples as de facto allies until proven otherwise. That can indeed be really annoying in some games and make them less interesting. Not so in Twilight Imperium, which is first and foremost a diplomacy game. The table has so many tools to counter such an alliance, if only by an alliance of their own. It really should not be such an issue. It just adds to the narrative. I kind of go the same way. I'm not big on the negotiation games. It's been stated here before, Twilight Imperium is not one of my favorite games. But I think the thing is that whenever I played it, there are times whenever I knew I wasn't going to win the game. I mean, I still played my best. I did what I could to to play it. But I looked at it more of a way as I'm going to explore this game while I'm playing it and see what different types of things happen. So twofold things happen whenever you play it this way. Number one you get to fully try out the game. You get to kick the tires, check the oil, everything else in the game. But then also, whenever you have people that play that game a lot and know what to do in this game, this throws a whole wrench in their kind of thing because they're expecting people to play this certain way. So whenever you play somebody completely different than what they expect, I mean, it it kind of makes them think of better ways to play. It might throw in a strategy they never even thought of. It may throw them into, well, I'm going to go attack it. Why is he looking at that planet over there? 
That's really bizarre. Maybe I should keep an idea on what he's doing there. So it throws in a wrench that not only makes you enjoy the game a little bit more, but also may throw in a wrench that makes them enjoy the game a little bit more and think of strategies they normally would not have thought of. I'll highlight what JC had to say. He says, when a player is categorically unable to win, how should they or other players for that matter, assess their decisions? Every mm-hmm. possible choice they might make has the same outcome. They still lose. Getting a higher mm-hmm. score or closer to the winner's score has no meaning. And there's plenty of strategies that will deliver nice, nice, safe second place outcomes. Same for the other win approximations. Just a barrel of that was pointless. So what to do? I suggest calling any interactive game as soon as a categorical winner or loser is identified. Then reset, restart, and have another go. So he's actually suggesting that the game be called <laughs> when someone has a clear path to victory. And I was curious, do you guys ever do this? No. Well, no, no never. And normally I'm not spending 14 hours playing one game. Oh, that's true too. Well, let's take Twilight Imperium out of the occasion. I think that puts some skin in the game, puts, you know, gets some emotion in the game. But you know what? Playing magic, people concede all the time. Once you're like, well, I, I can't. I can't win. Hmm. And some sometimes in magic, you might still have a mathematical chance, but it's so low, you just got I'll concede. So I yeah. have nothing wrong with whenever a game is called. Now, granted, that's one-on-one. And you're saying, okay, I'll give you the – you're never in a winning yeah. position and say, okay, you concede because I've got mathematical. <laughs> I've got you now. So you're done. <laughs> and it doesn't work out that way. It's kind of arrogant, isn't it? Um. So- <laughs> Magic players. Well, I'm clearly, are, I'm clearly winning. So um, you're gonna concede, right? It's like, you know what? what? In, again, in competitive magic, you could get away with saying that, and the other guy would go, "Yeah," because <laughs> no, they know. Yeah, people know. People do it in chess all the time. You know, okay, mm-hmm. I've lost. You mm-hmm. know, and now I guess maybe the where we're crossing crossing a border here is what about whenever there's four people and Andrew clearly has the win, Pat cannot win. But darn it, Pat looks like he's having fun. And three people here are ready to move on to the next game. But man, Pat's really loving building that railroad over there in that corner (laughs) on his way to third place (laughs) or fourth place, right? Uh, That becomes an issue, doesn't it? Not for me. No? No. I would look at that as if three of the four people are not having a good time and you know it's over, you know what? Suck it up, buttercup. We're going to move on. Yes, we had a good time while we were playing it. There's no way anyone's going to actually be able to finish it up. If we ruin one person's day, okay, it's one person. If we ruin three people's day, then everyone's going to be in a bitchy mood whenever they play the next game. So I would say just kind of logically put out like where things are. Look at he's going to do this, 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 and the game's going to be over. Let's just Mm -hmm. move on to something else. So that would be my opinion on that. That's going to be more of the bigger type of game here. Smaller game. Yeah. I mean, if it's like an hour long game, let's play it out. Longer term game. Yeah. I mean, the number of times I played a Warhammer game and I look at it and like, you know what? There's no way I'm going to come back from this. Let's good game and move on from it there. I mean, it's one of those things you just need to accept your losses and move on. We got a response from Dan that I thought was quite interesting. And and Dan wrote, I apply common sense. Common sense is try to do as well as you can. Depending on the game in question and your own personal preferences, 
that could be that you try to score as much as you can. You try to make the difference between the winner's score and yours as small as possible, or that you make sure survive as long as possible. But you don't decide to pull all of your effort into making someone else win or do other things which would ruin the game for other people and which you'd never do if you still had a chance of winning. I thought that was quite interesting. Don't become the wild card in a game. Like once you're out, don't just like some people do. Okay, I'm out because you attacked me here and that crippled my my army. So I'm out of the running. So my vendetta is I'm going to attack you back. Well, that's actually okay. I don't mind that in a game because like, well, if you're out and you want to get back at the person that got, oh, that tricky, tricky stuff. So really what's at the core of what we're talking about and, you know, thank you everyone who wrote seven pages and responded to the polls and all of that. But the real question or the crux of the question is, is there a difference between I play to win and I play to win? Those are exact same phrases, but there's a different meaning behind it. Now, for me, I'll answer mine first, and then we can kick it around the table. Sure. But I always play to win. I don't ever really call games early, not because of the game. Sometimes we have time constraints and the place is closing up. I do remember one time where I began violently throwing up during a game of seasons. No reflection on the game. It's actually a great game. And so that game was conceded, but I've never really just called a game because it's of someone winning, except for when I was a teenager and we played Risk, but that's for a different time. So if you played if you played Risk when you were a teenager, it was just like, I own this half of the board, you own that half of the board. Seriously, do you want to roll this out or do you just want to give it to me? And most of the time it would just be like, yeah, I'll just give it to you. Or, or whatever, vice versa, whatever the case may be. But it's kind of a philosophical question about gaming. For me, the answer is this, and I'll try to put it as eloquently as I can at this hour. It really comes down to the result. I play to win, slash, I play to win. What happens when the result is that you don't win or that you're not going to win? I think that's where the distinction is. So you start looking at like behavioral psychology, all that kind of fun stuff. But everyone should play to win, at least in my opinion. No one should sit around and goof off of a, in the game. Uh, you know, we've had those moments where someone pretends that they're a trader when they're not a trader just to, you know, muck up the game or, oh, or do, something, did. You, you do something silly to go over here. And it's like, there's no reason why you're, you would go over there and do that just to be dumb. You got that one person who won't trade in Settlers of Catan just because again, they don't want to trade. It's not like that. It's a matter of everyone wants to try to win and that everyone should play to win. But when that doesn't happen, what comes out of the behavior there? Where does their mindset go? Does their mindset say, I am going to press on or Winston Churchill, you know, keep buggering on, you know, till the end, despite what happens, or am I going to be 
and lack of better terms, threw a hissy fit. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean flip the table or anything dramatic like that, but I think we've all played with or seen someone who is going to get grumpy. They're going to oh, yeah. grab their phone and they're going to just check out of the game because they're not winning and they can't get that special combo that they wanted to trigger. And that's where I think the distinction is. I don't think the distinction is fundamentally in the question itself. I think it's more in the reaction, in the mindset of the player. We should all play to win. And so yeah, go ahead and we'll kick it around the table. Patrick? You know what? I know if I'm not going to win a game, I am definitely going to play to try and increase my score. I want to, my goal then becomes, okay, get my score as high as possible. It doesn't mm-hmm. make any difference if I'm in last place with five points or if I'm in last uh, in last place with 10 points. It truly doesn't matter. I'm still in last place, but I can at least say, okay, I performed better. I, like I, I am the type where I can look back on that performance and be like, hey, I still did something. Or if I'm not winning and I cannot win because of poor decisions earlier, mm-hmm. that's an opportunity where I can look at my game and go, okay, what can I do now? Now that I'm in this situation, can I yeah. find a way out of it so that if I'm in this situation again, I'll have some experience with handling it. What do you do when you're functionally removed from competition, Scott? If it's a game that I've played before, I like to play to do better than I did the past time. I'm not a big competitive gamer. I'm not, as you put it, Andrew, I'm more the I play to win in blue uh, font instead of I play to win in red (laughs) font. We'll call it. We'll call it I play to win versus super competitive. Okay. So, yeah, I play to win, to do my very best that I can. I'm not going into a game where if something goes against me, I'm going to get in that mode of flipping the table. And I think that's something that's very important. That's what I like to think of is the nature of the game to play, to do better, to have a good time, to enjoy the experience, Mm -hmm. not in... I ain't going to win by all means necessary. Patrick, you know, I've said this before. Dinosaur Island. That oh, was here one of those go. things there. Yeah. And it was just <laughs> like, I played with someone that one little thing went wrong and he went through, he finished playing, but we heard so much about what he did wrong. And so how upset he was by not doing that. And he was salty for the rest of the evening because of it. And it was just like, why? Why are you getting so upset about this? Just just move on. And, and, well, Scott, and let me ask you a question. Okay. Have you ever seen me pout or have a hissy fit whenever I'm losing? Mm. <laughs> no. Be nice. No. Okay. No, <laughs> say, come on now. Okay. Would but you you're describe normally me as- winning because you've mapped out every single <laughs> part of the game? Would, <laughs> would you describe me as super competitive? I would say you're you're competitive. I wouldn't say you're super competitive. I mean, you want to win, but you're not the kind of person that I'm going to win no matter what. And if I lose, I'm going to pout for a little while just, just to myself. <laughs> you're not going to let anybody know you're you're in a bad mood. But no, you're not a super competitive person, but you are competitive. You know what? And I mean, your opinion of me, it will remain unchanged, but I would describe myself as super competitive, super competitive. Like if I'm playing a game, I'm playing it because I want to win. I'm going to play to win, but like, I am playing to win. Like, you know, if I don't win, it doesn't ruin my day or anything, 
but I immediately start thinking, okay, what did I do wrong? Where can I assess, you know, what, mm-hmm. what part of my play did I need to adjust to make sure that I can win next time? Like I'm extraordinarily competitive. And I think a lot of that stems from magic. Like, like there were times with magic. Oh my goodness. Some of the la- like playing moto uh, on the computer and like, you're not actually sitting in front of the person. Some of the times that like you pound your fists and yell a expletive, you know, to your computer screen because that competitive, that's oh. Nevertheless, coming full circle here, I think I think I would describe myself as super competitive, and I think that maybe one of the core differences in in our thought, you and I, and we'll get to Andrew here in a second, but I think when I think super competitive, I don't think that that means that when that person's losing, they're pouting or they're upset or it ruined their day. I just think that they put a lot of time and energy into their gameplay because they care that much more about the win. Like maybe you get, maybe it's an amount of endorphins that they get from, from the win uh, matters more to them than someone who's simply playing to win, but is there for fun. You know, it doesn't care if they don't, or, or, you know, let's see, I'm super competitive, but I don't care if I, if I lose, you know, I'll reassess. Andrew, let's, let's take it to you. Cause I'm rambling. What do you think differences between someone who's playing to win and someone who's super competitive? What do you think? Uh, listening to us ramble that's stirring up any thoughts? Well, I already kind of talked about the distinction of, you know, it's a mindset type thing of someone who just wants to play. And I I would say, Patrick, I would consider you a competitive guy just because you have a self-worth or self-evaluation, I should say, of playing optimally. I want to play optimally. You're, yes. you're, you have a lot of deep roots in Magic the Gathering, and I, I notice a lot of trend uh, or a trend of people that play Magic the Gathering, they want to be every play's got to be optimal. I don't want to have suboptimal playing. I didn't grow up with that. I mean, I have played Magic the Gathering. I understand what it is in the community the community and stuff. So I already kind of talked about the distinction between the two. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I find very fascinating, and I'd, I'd love to explore this on a bigger scale, not today, but a lot of the ways in which we grow through games, how games allow us to experience experiences, but mostly emotions that we just have to deal with. Disappointment, regret, and I don't mean like regret, like I shouldn't have pulled my sister's hair, but that suboptimal move where you're like, oh, you know what? I regret doing that now that I'm seeing the the full layout of the, the board. I think dealing with those emotions and experiencing those emotions of trying as hard as you can, I'm going to play to win, consarnate, and then not really being able to win, but trying your best. I think there's something to be said about that. Now, I know we're all adults, but it's really kind of comes to that little Bart Simpson kind of kid who's just like, you know, you did your best, honey. Like your best is like all you can do. But Mm -hmm. even as adults, we need to hear that. And so I know it sounds kiddish, pun intended, but even as adults, it's good to have those moments of teaching us to just go, you know what? it wasn't my day today or round or whatever. It just wasn't my game. And I'll finish with this. A lot of new people that I meet, I tell them about how I play a lot of games. I'm on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel. I talk a lot about board games. You know, I use BG stats. For those of you that don't know, it's just an app that keeps track of your games. I actually lose more games than I win. And yet I'm the quote unquote game guy or the game master guy. People have all these dumb hokey things for me. Like, you know, at <laughs> the work, nerd. I get nerd. Well, 
I think that games are didactic, meaning that they can offer us these positions and these experiences that give us the chance to grow and to kind of understand, to kind of quell those feelings of being upset. It allows us to develop those tools as individuals to be able to go, well, what happens when things don't work out the way I want them to? Well, Scott, Andrew, boys, we did it. We made it to the end. End of episode 48. And as we always like to close out our episodes, let's talk about how we leveled up since last time. I'm going to go first this time. We'll let Andrew close it up. So my level up, I got to play Through the Ages on BGA with Jesse. Scott, I, we had the chance to meet Jesse at the last couple of meetups. He's made it out there and he's like, hey, I've been listening to the show. You love Through the Ages. Hmm. I love Through the Ages. So we've been playing on BGA and I get the little notification on my phone like, hey, it's your turn. I'm like, me, getting all excited. So that's my level up. Back on BGA, playing one of my favorite games with a new friend jesse scott since the last episode how have you leveled up i'm just trying to figure out who this jesse is i can't say his whole um, name on <laughs> yeah 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 jesse jesse i'll, I'll jesse. tell you after the show i oh. kid i kid and i know right now he's CIA? probably sitting in there laughing and yelling at me no i've known jesse for years oh, and years okay. and years <laughs> Okay, so for my level up, I've been able to reach out to a couple other places here, Thunderworks games and Inside Up games, get some new games in here for us to try to get a chance to review. It's starting to feel like people are noticing us, and it's so exciting. Never once did I think that we'd be peering over the hillside at episode number 50. And it's just something really exciting and love to be part of this. And it's been absolutely wonderful. And I'm looking forward to making it our way to 50th. Andrew, the spotlight's on you. No pressure. Give us your level up. Well, recently I leveled up about two weeks ago. I'm currently a grad student, so I'm going through my master's, you know, graduate program. And uh, two weeks ago, I had to prepare a quite in-depth and quite lengthy presentation, you know, PowerPoint and all, but it was all about gamification and where we see gamification in businesses, in advertising, and just in our everyday life and apps. I pointed out some apps like like Chore Wars. I talked about the McDonald's Monopoly Mm -hmm. thing from when when I was a kid anyways. Mm -hmm. It was was all rigged. But just talking about that to 35 people in the room that had really no clue. I mean, we all do it all the time. You know, you go to that coffee shop on Tuesday. Why? Because Tuesdays are double punch Tuesdays. Yeah, I'm and not going to miss my double card. punch. You kidding me? Yeah. You got a min max here. And so if I can get this sucker punched out, then I can get a free like croissant or something or whatever. That's all kind of game like elements being implemented into your everyday somewhat boring life, you know, they really took it in at the end of the presentation. There probably wasn't a single hand that didn't go up for like, you know, to take questions and, and things like that. And so that was a really interesting moment for me to kind of level up in my own life and talk about gamification and how we see the elements that we see in board games pop up in our real lives. 
Hey, adventurers, keep your ears open. We've got a special episode coming out on a Monday. What? Yes, Monday, February 28th. Solar 175 has its Kickstarter launching on Tuesday, March 1st. The day before that is when you can hear our thoughts here at Level Up. We had the chance to have both the designers on the show. We talked to them for a good bit. We played it on Tabletop Simulator. I can't wait to tell you about it, but you got to listen to us on a Monday for a change. Also, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, Fabricators Forge, our meetup is March 12th. Make sure you make it out there. We're going to have some giveaways, food truck, beer, you name it. It's going to be a good old time. Andrew, where can we find out about As Per My Ability? Yeah, so once again, my name's Andrew Davidson, and I operate As Per My Ability. It is uh, com, where you can find basically links to all the good, fun stuff. So I have a podcast, I have a, a YouTube channel, a blog, you know, Instagram, Twitter. Go on to com. check out the YouTube, you know, comment, like, subscribe. I definitely recommend if you're interested in hearing me go a little deeper into the exit game uh search up the video that i did on my youtube channel and you can hear more about you know what i thought about the advent calendar exit game well andrew thank you so much for joining us today we'll get you on again soon thank you this has been great scott until next time sir take care everyone thank you so much for joining this adventure of the level up board game podcast We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhainesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.